My name is Justin, and I'm one of the pastors here. It's very good to have you. Um, if you weren't here last week, uh, you, you missed an announcement that was, that was kind of a big deal. Um, if you haven't heard uh, what last week's announcement was, um, kind of going back 10 years ago, uh, something that has been brewing in me and, and something I've been praying about and thinking about and considering for quite a long time, um, that for the last six months have begun, had begun to pray about um, really intentionally and fasting and seeking counsel um, has, has kind of culminated about a month ago. My wife and I decided that uh, um, we, we feel God's call very clearly um, to move us uh, to San Francisco to plant Redemption San Francisco. And uh, we are excited about that, excited about what uh, the future holds for redemption both here and in San Francisco. Um, and, uh, and so this is going to be a, there's going to be a transition here. Um, Ricardo is going to take my place. It's a very uh, natural transition there. And uh, we'll, we'll figure out what's going on in Arcadia as well. I'm still going to be around for the next six months or so. Uh, I'll be in and out of the pulpit a little more than usual, but I, I will be around. Uh, and so one of the things we want to make sure you guys know is that if you have questions, if you want to talk and, and figure out what the, all this means, uh, please come talk to us. We, we're always down here at the front after service, um, and then we're all making ourselves more available than usual during the week uh, to meet with you if, if you have questions, specific things that you'd like to discuss. Um, but, but that's the announcement that we made last week. And uh, as, as difficult as this, the week prior was, as we began to tell um, our closest friends and family and the members and all those kinds of things, um, this week, this last week, has been one of the best I've ever had. My, my biggest fears going into this were that, that you were going to react angry and, and bitter, and, and I, I, I pictured riots. And... Um, and, and none of that happened. In fact, I showed up to Arcadia this morning for the 9 o'clock, and one of our guys was walking by. He goes, hey, no one keyed your truck. I guess that's good. I'm like, yes, it's really good. I was worried about that. So um, you, you guys honestly ha have been um, amazing. And everything that we prayed would happen has happened. You guys have responded just uh, at least to my face uh, as well as, as we could hope in that there was um, a level of disappointment and sadness, which uh, I, th I think is good. I mean, it would have been just as bad if you'd all gone, yeah, whatever. Uh, I, I would have been like, oh, love me. Uh, uh, so it seemed like there was an appropriate amount of sadness or disappointment and then excitement for the future, excitement for what's going on in San Francisco. And, and, and we've heard from a lot of you like, hey, we're in here. Don't, don't worry about us. We're, we'll stick around. And so um, my guess is, because I know human nature, um, there's rumors and there's gossip and there's things going on. And uh, I would just ask you personally uh, to stop that. And, and if, if you hear something, you just go, that doesn't sound right. Uh, just, just come talk to us, and, and we'll tell you, you're right, that's not right. Uh, that, 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 that's, a, that's bad stuff. So um, that, that's kind of on y'all to, to y'all. What's Arizona done to me? Um, that's on you guys, uh, you dudes. I'm going to California, so I got to practice. Um, but um, uh, I, I would appreciate your help on that um, as, as we kind of make our way through this transition. So um, I just want to thank you personally for, for how well this, this week has, has gone and, and the response that we've gotten. Um, and we're excited. We're excited to spend the next six months here. Um, our plan is to leave right before Arizona transitions into hell. And, um, and, and then, you know, not, 
just well just because we want to avoid that and so um so that that's that's kind of the plan so that was the announcement so if you missed last week eh, not that big a deal but uh wanted to catch you up on that okay we are uh in week five our our final week of our scandalous series and so if you'll turn to matthew chapter 5 verses 43 through 48. That's where we're going to be. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. One of the guys will bring you a Bible. Uh, If you own a Bible, uh, then just give this one back. If you don't own one, please keep this. And uh, the guys will get you those Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. This series has been um, an interesting one. Five weeks of looking at the hard sayings of Jesus. Um, things that Jesus taught his disciples or taught just the generic crowds um, about himself and about the kingdom of God and about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And there's all kinds of things, uh, uh, ways that Jesus is portrayed in culture. And, and we felt like one of the ways that is somewhat underrepresented were some of these hard things, some of these more direct things that Jesus taught. And so we thought we'd pick five of them. And, and every week I've kind of gotten up and gone, hey, this week is more of a more of an evangelistic one or this one is more of a a message specifically to his disciples and this one would certainly this final one would certainly fall into the second category of um, Jesus talking to his disciples saying this is what this is what it means to follow me these this is one of the ways um, that we do things differently um, in the kingdom of God. And so if you're here and you're not a believer, we're excited you're here. It's good. We, we welcome questions and interaction. Um, but, uh, but this is a message that, that I want you to hear um, in, in somewhat of an observational way um, to look at the Christians that are around you, the Christians that are in your life, probably the Christians that invited you here tonight and go, okay, this is what Jesus expects from, from them, from my friends, okay? And so kind of see that. And then as we, as disciples, obviously, we want to internalize this. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, Jesus uses this, this phrase and this kind of formula over and over in the Gospels and, and in a very condensed way over and over in the Sermon on the Mount where he goes, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, okay? And so what Jesus is doing there is he's calling upon a mixture of Old Testament biblical teaching um, with an addition often of um, the scribes and the Pharisees' um, comments on the scriptures. And so most of the people weren't, didn't have the kind of access to the scriptures that we would have. And so these educated men would, with typically great intentions, talk about and write about what the scriptures were saying, and at times they would make additions that Jesus disagreed with. And so when, when Jesus goes, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies, um, this is Jesus referring specifically to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, which I assure you, um, if you go look it up, says that we should love our neighbors, but does not say that we should hate our enemies. In fact, nowhere in the Bible does it tell us that we ought to hate our enemies. This was an addition made by these scribes and Pharisees. They go, oh, okay, well, if if all God tells us is to love our neighbors, then I guess it makes sense that we could hate our enemies. And Jesus is going, no, 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 that's not how it works in the kingdom of God. He says, not only can we not hate our enemies, he says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, the first thing that jumped out at me in this is um, the idea of having enemies. 
right? And, and for the people that Jesus is talking to in this immediate context, their, their enemies are obvious, right? The Jewish people, as a, as a nation, are under the, the leadership, under the oppression of the Roman government. So when Jesus says, love your enemies, they're going, oh, okay, um, so the Roman guards, the tax collectors, um, the, the Roman officials, Pilate, the governor, the, the, you know, all, all of the higher-ups in the Roman government, he goes, now, now I'm supposed to love those people and pray for them, even though they they are an oppressive regime. So there was an immediate kind of nationalistic implication for the people that would hear. And there is at times a tendency for people now to look at this passage and go, okay, what this means is that in the face of attack, in the face of terrorism, in the face of war, we should respond as a nation we should respond as a nation by loving our enemies and therefore should be pacifists. And I, and, I, and I would just simply say this. Perhaps there are some nationalistic um, implications, application for a passage like this one. But, in, but before we get there, I would encourage you to do it on the personal level. Make this apply to your heart and your life before you begin to uh, maybe hide behind. Yeah, this, this is about pacifism. Well, first and foremost, it's about you loving your enemy in your life personally. Then, then maybe you can work on extrapolating it out to larger groups, but let, let's have you deal with the people that you hate before we move on beyond that, okay? Now, here's where it gets a little sensitive because I, I look at this passage and, and my first flinch was, I don't have enemies. I'm a pastor. Who, who could hate me? Right? Like, that, this, is, this is sound processing. Although, I did think this week it might be kind of fun if we had, like, rival churches and there was, like, pastors that I just didn't like and oh, hate those guys, right? Like, it might kind of spice things up a little bit. So, something for Ricardo to consider as Redemption Tempe continues. But, I, I mean, I'm, I'm literally looking at this and going, I, I don't have enemies. Who, who is my enemy? I mean, this, this, this feels like storybook time where the good guys and the bad guys and the, you know, the good guys are, are fighting against evil and there's swords and magic and stuff. And it's like, is there, do I really have enemies? And so as I was processing that more personally, I thought to myself, you know what, there are some people in here who, who do have enemies and I would say, especially in light of what Jesus is about to tell us, um, they are your enemies legitimately so. And here's what I mean. There are many, statistically speaking, there are many in here who have experienced abuse, um, rape, molestation, physical pain, mental abuse, emotional abuse, spiritual abuse, and, and, and you have very real enemies. So when you hear Jesus say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, there's a, there's a name and a face and a moment that comes to mind immediately. And, and I, I want to I walk very gently here to, to say two things. One, this doesn't feel like the moment to deal with um, those issues. These are serious issues, important issues, probably issues that go deeper into your heart and mind than, than even you know. And it's something that you need to um, be engaging actively through counseling, meeting with a pastor. I mean, this is something that needs to be worked on and dealt with. And so here's, here's where the tension comes. This verse applies to you too. 
there, there's, not a, there's not a moment here where Jesus says, love your enemies unless they have hurt you this much. And, and pray for those who persecute you unless they've done these things. So this is going to look really different for you. And by no means am I, am I telling you to, to go find your attacker and give them a hug and love them. That, that, that's not what I'm saying at all. I, I, I don't at all want to make this a, a, a trite moment for you because there's real pain and real suffering. It's long-lasting. It's deep-seated. And, and don't gloss over that. But when Jesus says, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you, that, that does mean all of us. It does mean all of us. And, and you need to be, be working with counselor, pastor, someone in your life who can help you discover what exactly that means in a, in a really healthy way, in a way that, that takes into consideration what's happened. Okay? So I, I feel that tension, knowing that a lot of you in here are, are in that category. I, I know also that there, is a lot of, there are a lot of you in here who don't, who go, who are kind of thinking along the lines of me and going, ah, enemy seems like a, like a strong word for the people that have popped into my mind. That guy's annoying. She's weird. I, I, you know, this, my boss is, frustrates me. But, but enemy, enemy feels strong. So he, here's what I was thinking about this week. And it, and it helped that last night um, I was talking to my wife and we were having a, we'll call it spirited discussion. Um, about some San Francisco things and, and, and all that. And we, we were having a talk and, and we, were, we, were, we were having this spirited discussion and in the midst of that, that uh, one of the more spirited moments of the discussion, um, I, I, felt, I felt myself getting frustrated and frustration leads to anger for me. And so I felt that coming, but I'm a really analytical person. And so I have an ability to, to use my mind to, to suppress my emotions it's, it's super healthy. And, and, uh, but but what, it, what it honestly does allow me to do is, is to recognize, very, very kind of intellectually recognize when, when that emotion is starting to happen. And I go, uh-oh, queasiness. You know, like I, I know how to deal with it. And so I said, you know what? Um, let's stop talking real quick. Let me go out in the backyard. Let me just think for a second and figure out why I'm getting frustrated right now. And, and, and I walked out in the backyard and it was a glorious night and I, you know, I'm just kind of standing back there in my backyard and it's peaceful and quiet and, and, and I was thinking about why am I so frustrated? What is, it, what is it that she said or what is it that she did? Why am I reacting this way? And I'm playing out the argument in my head how it could have ended and I won. And, um, <laughs> and I, and I kind of got lost in thought for a little while and and realized, you know, kind of, you know, you kind of come out of it and, and realized probably had been five minutes had gone by. And I thought, why hasn't she come out? Why, why hasn't she come out to seek reconciliation with me? And there was a moment where I thought maybe she was behind me crying and just waiting for me to turn around so that she could on bended knee repent. And I turned and She wasn't there. And so I, 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 I felt, though, this, this kind of rising up. Like, why, why should I have to be the one to go inside and initiate reconciliation? You start to do this. Well, I, I 
always have to do this. She has never said she's sorry in her life. You know, you always just... just. And, and, and I thought in that moment, I thought, here's, here's my enemy, my wife. And I don't mean that it, in, in as bad as it would sound. I think for most of us, we don't have one kind of long-standing enemy that, that has been our arch-rival, our nemesis. We have a bunch of little moments with people we otherwise like or care about where, where there is conflict, enmity, and in those moments, that they are our enemy. And so I, I was standing there, and, and God always does this. When, when, whenever I don't have a good illustration, he makes me sin, and then I see it, and there, there's my illustration. <laughs> I'm not sure that was theologically correct, but... Uh, <laughs> points out my sin, and, and I, I, I'm able to see it in those moments. And I thought, you know what? This is a moment. This is a moment for me to apply tomorrow's message. This is, this is a moment. How can I love my enemy in this moment? And so he, here's, what's, here's what's horribly frustrating about, about Jesus' command to love our enemy. What in the world does that mean? What, is it, what in the world does it mean to love our enemy? I, I, would, I would argue that love is the most worthless word in the English language. Because it is used in such a wide variety of ways that, that it, it, means, it ends up meaning nothing half the time. What does it mean to love my enemy? To, to have generally amorous feelings towards them? Should I want to date them? Should it, what, how am I supposed to, what does that mean exactly? At, at least the other one where he says pray for those who persecute you. I know what that means. And, and I'll just take a second on that because it's, it's really, really incredible how, how God made us. And, and I would say this, if you are married or, or engaged or dating, this works really well in, in relationships. If you are in the middle of a spirited discussion, stop, if you can, and pray. Just, just in the middle, as it's starting to ramp up, you can feel it starting to ramp up, just go, hey, sweetheart, let's just pray real quick. And then, and then we'll continue to, to discuss this in a spirited manner. But, but let's just pray. And this unbelievable thing happens where you can't continue to be mad at someone when, after you've prayed for them. I mean, now, I, I don't think Jesus had in mind prayers like, God, strike down my enemy. <laughs> Kill them in their sleep. That, I don't think that counts. But I'm telling you, if in the midst of a fight, you just stop and go, hey, can we pray real quick? I, tell, I guarantee you, when you say amen, you'll be making out. This, it's just, <laughs> I guarantee it. There's, there's just something about that moment of, of actually asking for, for someone else's good, asking God to bless that person that makes it impossible to continue to be mad at them. And so Jesus goes, pray for those who persecute you. Pray for their well-being. Pray certainly that for repentance if that's what's needed, but pray with, with a desire for their good in mind. So at least that's specific. I can get my arms around that one. But love, I don't know what that means. 
And so I was thinking about it last night when, when I thought about my wife being my enemy and I thought, okay, how do I love her? What does loving her look like in this moment? And I thought, I wonder, I wonder if, if Jesus didn't use this, this generic term on purpose so that it would put the responsibility back on us to ask, ask the question, what does it mean to love my enemy in this moment? How can I, an individual person, right? Because we could go around the room and tell, tell the story of our enemies, and they would all be a different person. They would all be different situations. They would all, all be different scenarios of how the pain happened and all that. It would all be different. And so there, there can't possibly be three steps to solving these problems. It's got to be, listen, love them. If there's one thing I've taught over and over and over and over for seven years here is that everything spiritual, everything from Jesus starts here and works its way out. All of it, repentance and faith and believing Jesus and trusting him and caring for people, it always starts here with a heart conviction of its inherent goodness and then works its way out to actual action. And so when Jesus goes, love your neighbor, I wonder if he's not putting the responsibility on us to go, Think about it. Think through this scenario, this moment, with this person. How can you love them in, in the midst of this situation? And so I thought, okay, here's how I can love my wife right now. I can go back inside, and we can sit down and eat dinner, and, and I can initiate reconciliation. And so we went back in, and we sat down, and and I'm thinking about this the whole time. How can, I, how can I do this right? I know my wife. I know how she reacts. I know how she responds. I know how to interact with her best. I know how to push her buttons too. And so I'm going, okay, love her. And so I told her that the reason I was getting frustrated was because some of the things she was saying were pushing on some, some insecurities and some fears that I have about San Francisco. And when she was pushing on those things, I'll, I'll assume accidentally, when she was pushing on those things, it, it made those insecurities and fears worse. And, and that's why I began to get frustrated and, and reacted angrily. And so I told her, I said, these are my, these are my insecurities. As I'm looking out into the future, I'm going, this is really gonna be really hard. It's a tough city and there's a lot of work to do and a lot of money to raise and all, all these things. And so I, I, I had to tell her what, what some of these insecurities and fears were in hopes that she would reciprocate and say, well, here's why I was saying those things. And she did. She reacted great. And, and we were making out by the end. <laughs> Too much? <laughs> so it, it, it's almost as if Jesus goes, listen, I'm going to put this on you. And I'm not going to give you three easy steps to reconciliation. I'm going to say, love this person. So you have to take the time, and this is especially true in relationships, when you know the other, your spouse or you know your girlfriend or boyfriend really, really well, and you go, I know how to love her. I know how I can do this. I know how I can love him in this moment. I know how I can undo what has been done. Okay, and so I think Jesus is giving us that command very intentionally to go, Here, here's how you need to do this. Here's how you need to think through this process. Paul gets more specific in Romans chapter 12, verse 17 through 21. 
He tells us, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not, be, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And it's that last line that, that's the money line. I mean, Paul gives us some, some pretty practical things. You meet the needs of your enemy. If he's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, um, give him something to drink. Don't, don't repay evil for evil. Don't, don't do the eye for an eye thing. Don't think vengeance. Vengeance will kill you. All, all those things. But at the very end, he goes, listen, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And I, I, I put this in the, in the kind of broader matrix of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And we think about this in terms of the world was made perfect, made just how God wanted it to be made. And then sin entered the world, and little by little, evil began to overcome God's creation. And it's almost like Paul's going like, in these moments, live like the way you were meant to live. Create the world that was meant to be. Don't allow evil to overcome good. Don't be sucked in by a desire to to find vengeance, a desire to repay the pain that you've experienced. Don't, Don't be overcome by the desire to react out of pride, not humbling yourself to ask for forgiveness. Don't let evil overcome good, but overcome that evil with good. Stand up for what we know is true and right. And in that moment, overcome the darkness that is trying to creep in and break up that relationship and and create animosity and anger and pain and brokenness in the midst of your life. Overcome that. So I I think through the way Jesus has has taught us to to do this, and and he says pray, which is nice and helpful, and he says love, which is really generic. And and as I'm thinking through this and, and thinking through enemies and how we deal with enemies, one idea kept kept popping up, kept creeping up. I thought, this has to be at the heart of this thing. This has to be at the heart of how we interact with, with, with our enemies. Because if we simply see what Jesus says to do and make it about doing, we'll, we'll miss it. We, we won't be able to really extract the bitterness. We won't really be able to extract what the pain that's in here. There's got to be something that comes first that frees us up to then actually love that person and be creative in the way we love that person. And that idea is forgiveness. Forgiveness. Especially in scenarios where we have been sinned against. And we harbor this idea that we are owed something. I mean, this is when I was standing outside waiting for my wife to come begging for my forgiveness. I, 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 that, that's where I was. I was unable to go and actively, wholeheartedly love my wife until I released her from the responsibility of pursuing reconciliation. Tim Keller in The Reason for God um, says it this way. This is a long section, but it's really good. He says, forgiveness means refusing to make them pay for what they did. However, to refrain from lashing out at someone when you want to do so with all your being is agony. It's a form of suffering. 
you not only suffer the original loss of happiness, reputation, and opportunity, but now forego the consolation of inflicting the same on them. You are absorbing the debt, taking the cost of it completely on yourself instead of taking it out of the other person. It hurts terribly. Many, would, many people would say it feels like a kind of death. Yes, but it is a death that leads to resurrection instead of the lifelong living death of bitterness and cynicism. Forgiveness means bearing the cost instead of making the wrongdoer do it. So you can reach out in love to seek your enemy's renewal and change. Forgiveness means absorbing the debt of sin yourself. Everyone who forgives great evil goes through a death into resurrection and experiences nails, blood, sweat, and tears. Should it surprise us then that when God determined to forgive us rather than punish us for all the ways we have wronged him and one another, that he went to the cross in the person of Jesus Christ and died there? On the cross, we see God doing visibly and cosmically what every human being must do to forgive someone, though on an infinitely greater scale. There was a debt to be paid. God himself paid it. There was a penalty to be borne. God himself bore it. Forgiveness is always a form of costly suffering. He gives this example in this same um, chapter of forgiveness being essentially a scenario where you lend your car um, to a friend and as they back out of your driveway, they hit your fence and a gate knock over a wall and you don't have insurance to pay for it and you have essentially two options in that moment. You can force them, demand that they pay for all the damages and fix what's been broken or you absorb the cost yourself and refuse to let them pay for anything. Certainly there's something in the middle in real life, but it's an illustration, so we need extremes. And, and, and the, the scenario of we, we take on all the pain ourselves, or what he didn't say, but what I've seen all too often and is definitely unhealthy, is just to pretend like the car never existed at all. But there, there tends to be two extremes. One is we make them pay, and the other is we pay ourselves. And what Keller says is forgiveness is taking the burden on ourselves. Forgiveness is saying to the other person, it's no longer your responsibility to make me right. It's no longer on you to bring peace into my life. I'm no longer going to seek your pain and your destruction and your misery as a way to make me feel better about my loss. And as Keller said, forgiveness is always a form of costly suffering. Which begs the question, then why should we do it? Why should we forgive the people that have wronged us? Now, there's two kinds of enemies, and we're only talking about one. Because one type of enemy is the one that's an enemy because of you. Right? One is the, is the kind of enemy you have because you have sinned against them. And the, the action plan on that is very clear. Repentance. Seeking restitution. Seeking to make it right. When it's on you and it's your sin, your mistake, your behavior, the path is very clear. Seek them. Repent to them. Swallow your pride. Forgive. Seek forgiveness. But what we're talking about is when we're sinned against, which makes forgiveness even more difficult because we are owed something. 
And as long as we hold out that debt, we, we will continue to wallow. And so the question of why should we do it if it's so costly? A couple reasons. One, because if you don't, it'll kill you. It'll drive you mad. You will be full of bitterness and anger. It will rot out your heart and rot out your soul. You will grow increasingly cold, defensive, as you just hate that person. It has a negative effect on you and your soul. You become completely narcissistic and self-involved and self-indulgent as, as everything is about healing your pain. Everything is about making you feel right and you feel better and everything becomes about you. And then in the worst moments, and I've seen this unfortunately, but in the worst moments there develops a kind of prejudice. I've heard people say, well, this guy wronged me when I was young and so now I don't trust men. This girl hurt me when I was young, so I hate women. So I, I just use them and try to hurt them in response. This really wealthy person hurt my family, so now I don't trust, I don't trust wealthy people. This, this, this type of person, this race of person did this thing to me, and they're all the same. You let them into your life, they'll all do that to you. Lack of forgiveness is the seeds of sexism and racism. Real prejudice that emerges in your heart when you can't let go. When you continue to hold that person responsible to make you feel right. The first reason we, we forgive is because if we don't, it will kill us. Number two, we forgive to demonstrate God's love for people. Romans chapter five, verses six through 11. Paul says, for while, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. When we forgive the people who have wronged us, we demonstrate God's love. We communicate to them who God is and what God's like. And therefore, as Jesus is talking to his disciples saying, listen, this is what we do. This is how the kingdom of God works. This is how we do enemies differently. This is how we do hatred and bitterness differently. Somebody sent me a, a video, one of our guys sent me a video this week of um, a, a serial killer, a Green River killer, who um, had killed something like 49 people. And this video was um, after he had been sentenced to death, and this was in the courtroom. And one of the last things before they took him away was um, to parade the, the victim's families in front of him. And it was amazing to see um, the, the people that would come up to the microphone and watch him respond to them. And they would just say, I hate you. 
I, I hope you go to hell. I hope you spend an eternity in hell. I hope you're Satan's favorite. I, I mean, they're just, they're just, just disgusting, vile, angry hatred. And he just sat there and took it. The stone face, the steely, steely gaze on his face. As he almost looked like he was feeding off their anger and hatred. And then this dude rolls up to the podium and I, I swear to you, he was Santa Claus's younger brother. He was this big portly dude with rainbow suspenders, big old white beard and white hair. And he kind of ambles up to the thing and he says, he says, there are a lot of people here who hate you. I am not one of them. You have made it difficult to live up to what I believe God calls us to do, and that's forgive. You are forgiven, sir. He says that to this guy who has murdered his daughter and 48 other people. And then that guy who is stone-faced in, in, in the face of anger and hatred absolutely melted down just completely broke down, sobbing. You could see his body shaking with sobs. As this one guy, Santa Claus, rolls up and tells him he's forgiven. <laughs> and he just absolutely breaks at the demonstration, maybe for the first time in his whole life, the demonstration of the love of God. That's, that's why we forgive. That's why we love. Because love is far more powerful than hate. And if really, really what we want is to see true repentance and true change in that enemy of ours, love and forgiveness is the way to do it. Lastly, we forgive and we love our enemies because that's who we are. Going back to Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who per persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? I hate that that rhymes. But, um, do not even the Gentiles do the same? Jesus goes, listen, think about this. He goes, when you love your enemies and, and pray for those who persecute you, he says, so that you may be sons of your father. Not, not become, not that loving and praying is the mechanism that makes us sons of our father. But he goes, so that you will be, so that you will live out who you are, so that you will walk in who you have been made to be. He goes, listen, if you are my disciples, here's what that means. If you are my disciples, it means that you acknowledge that you have received unmerited grace and mercy and love from God, that you have been forgiven of all your sin, even though you don't deserve it. So for you to then turn and look at your enemy and not extend that same love and that same grace and that same forgiveness, that is the height of hypocrisy. Because this is who we are. That when we decided to walk with God, when Jesus saved us, that he created us anew. The Bible tells us that we are new creation. The old is gone, that the new has come. That we have a new identity. That we are now sons of the Father. Whether you are a woman or a man, you are a son. Because in this culture, this had big meaning. Big meaning. 
that you had all the rights to the throne. You were an heir to this household. You have a new identity. Jesus goes, why why would you not walk in this new grace-enabled, spirit-empowered identity that you now have? There was a day when you couldn't possibly have loved your enemy, but now you can because I've changed you and I've saved you and I've made you new, so walk in that. Walk in that new you. The, the, the new you that will bring about change, that will bring about healing in your own heart and your own relationships. And, and if we're honest with ourselves, many of these enemies that we have are people that we deeply love and we long to have those relationships restored. But pride in us stops us from seeking that reconciliation, from actually loving those people and so those relationships remain broken. And Jesus is going, this isn't who you are. He says, you are rich, and yet you are choosing to live in poverty. You, you are a rich man. You are a rich woman. Why, why do you live in poverty? Why would you choose to live this way? A way that brings bitterness and angst and brokenness into your life. Why would you do that? You, you have this new life, this new you, this new identity. Walk in it. Live in it. Seek out the depths of it. That, that's a great joy and a great promise. Jesus goes, if you're my disciples, that's who you are now. You are not a person who harbors bitterness. You are not a person who keeps enemies. You are a person who loves enemies and prays for those who persecute you. You are a peacemaker. That's who you are. And then just when Jesus is getting all encouraging he says verse 48 you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect which just undermines one of our favorite things to say well we're human we all make mistakes and jesus responds by going yes you are but that's not good enough if, if your only desire is to have audience with other imperfect humans, then you're probably fine. But if your desire is to have audience with God, perfection is the expectation. And, and Jesus does this multiple times throughout the gospel. He just sprinkles in these moments that just raise the bar out of our grasp where we really have no hope of ever really being perfect. And it's just a continuation, a lead-up that started in the Old Testament where, the, where God just set the bar so high that it created an awareness of need in us. Where we look at it and go, well, if it's that, I can't do that. And Jesus says, exactly, exactly. So our response is one of two things. Our response is one, which we see all too often, a lowering of the bar. We go, well, it's not really that because that's impossible. It's really this, and I meet that. And typically that bar sits somewhere right underneath you. Or two, we, we actually respond the way that Jesus intends for us to respond, which is to go, I'm in need. And Jesus says, lucky for you, I have a solution. The one person who could actually ask us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us is Jesus, 
who loved his enemies, a world full of enemies who were in rebellion, rejection, who defamed his name, who tarnished his reputation, who rejected him, sent him to the cross, and he took on all of our sin and exchanged it for his righteousness, which was given to us. So that we, even though far from being practically perfect, are perfect in the eyes of God as he looks upon his son. Jesus' righteousness given to us. And so when we can respond to that, when, when we respond the way Jesus intends for us to respond, we might be saved, we might be perfect, we might find audience with God, we might experience the kind of joy and life and satisfaction that Christ has for us here. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for passages like this one that are deeply challenging That, that break us out of our, um, our comfort, some of the assumptions that we've made and, and assumptions that are um, encouraged by the people around us. It's easy to find people in our lives who would tell us that we're okay to still be angry and still be bitter about our pain. It's easy to find people around us who would encourage us to wait it out and encourage us to refrain from seeking reconciliation, that we are somehow um, victims who deserve only to be sought after. There's no question that there is real pain in this world, that, that some have experienced deep, traumatic, horrible pain. But in that same moment, we have to remember, we have to realize that none of us has experienced the kind of pain that you've experienced that you walked down this road before us so that we could walk down the road after you. You experienced far more abuse, far more rejection, far more physical and mental torment than we ever could. You did it out of love. You did it so that we, your enemies, might have life. So Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged by that, that we would be empowered by the Spirit, remembering the grace that we've received, that we would seek to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. In Jesus' name, amen.